This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we talk with the Chief Strategy Officer of a global airline holding company about the challenges faced by air travelers with disabilities and some ways to address those. In the news, the DOT is considering increased passenger compensation for delays, and the industry doesn't like it, a private company that offers luxury terminal services, the outlook for the air traffic controller shortage looks bleak, the NTSB finds that posting to social media was a probable cause of a fatal plane crash, and a small Hawaiian airline plans to add electric ground-effect sea gliders to its fleet. All that and more, coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 766 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is first David Vanderhoof, our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Hi, folks. Just got back. I was running around South Carolina looking for a missing F-35, but (laughs) um, I was not one of the ones that got the reward for finding it. Uh, but yeah, it's clearly, um, our stealth, stealth technology works better than anybody in the Pentagon ever expected. So they haven't found it yet, huh? Well, no, they actually found, they did actually find it. They, it was, it was three and a half hours north of Charleston. So it must've been flying for at least 20 minutes after well, he ejected out of it. They found it by following the Russian diplomats who got there first. Yeah, no, actually, it was the Chinese, but yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so for those of you listening who don't know what we're talking about, uh, just today there was an F-35, I think, B model, David, if I... No, actually, it was Sunday. Well, we're recording this on Monday, so yeah, it was Sunday afternoon, it went down, and it was almost 24 to 20, almost 48 hours after it went down that they couldn't find the aircraft. Right. The pilot ejected and is apparently okay, but the... The plane continued on, not to be seen for some embarrassingly Ever. long period of time. Yeah, kind of makes you wonder if he really needed to punch out if it continued to fly for another 20 miles. I know. They're not saying what the issue was. And, and it did not have its transponder on, or nor did it have its um, – If I don't most people realize, but um, when stealth aircraft fly in the United States – they have bricks that they put on the side of them. Um, F-117s used to have these aerodynamic sort of protrusions that were removable off the side of the fuselage that would reflect radar. (laughs) So you could see them on radar because if you took them off, then the aircraft would disappear. So, (laughs) but evidently F-35Bs are really good at the only thing better than hiding is um, clearly a certain flight from um, the, into the Indian Ocean. All right. Well, look, uh, let's, uh, let's continue with the introductions now that we've had our, our pre-news segment. Uh, also with us is Rob Mark. He, of course, is a contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, which is part of the Aviation Week group. He's a BizJet pilot, a CFI, and he spent a portion of his career with the FAA as an air traffic controller and supervisor. And most importantly, and most recently, he publishes, well, not most recently, but he publishes the Jetwine blog. Hi, Rob. 
Wow, and that was all about me. Gosh, I'm I'm really impressed with me. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, listen, uh, thank you very much. It's nice to be here again. And also with us is Max Trescott, host of Aviation News Talk podcast. He's a national CFI of the year, and he's an expert on learning to fly or purchase a Cirrus aircraft. Hi there. Good to see everybody again. Happy to be here. Yes. Another week, another episode. And we have a, a guest, of course, this episode. That's Michael Switek. He's Chief Strategy Officer at Abra Group, which uh, includes Avianca and Goal Airlines. Abra Group is a, a global airline holding company. Mike is working with them, shaping the airline's strategic direction, enhancing profitability and competitiveness. But Mike is also on a mission to uplift the world's largest minority and enhance their travel experiences, that being the legally blind and those with low vision. Because you see, Mike is not only a senior airline executive, but he's legally blind himself. And as you might imagine, Mike has had some unique life experiences that have impacted his outlook and and his career journey. Mike, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Thanks, Max. It's a real pleasure to be here. I've been a listener of this show since 2008 and can't wait to get into the subjects of persons with disability, airline strategy, and whatever else you crazy guys throw at me tonight. You know, Mike, you and I were talking earlier today, and uh, before we get to the news, and you had an interesting statistic about the proportion of the population with disabilities. Yeah, so persons with disabilities fall into four major groups. There's visually impaired, like myself, which is about 2.5% of the population, Uh, deaf and hearing impaired, which is about 3.5% of the population, People with mobility issues, think of permanent wheelchair users as about 5 to 6% of the population, and then neurodiverse people, so think autism, Down syndrome, et cetera, which again are another 5 to 6% of the population. Those are pretty rounded numbers, but if you also accept that some people could be deafblind or um, have more than one of those, it it comes out to about 15% of the population in the U.S. and globally. Which is an amazingly large number, and uh, if, if I had had to guess, I would not have guessed something uh, that large. So that's that's really significant. The impact. Yeah, and 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 I'd point out Max as well. That is interesting because you know if if visually impaired are two and a half percent of the population, think the next time you're on a eighty percent full A three twenty, you know you should really have maybe three or four people if averages worked out. Uh, but you don't see them. Now, part of that's because of uh, hidden disabilities that people like myself, I was able to mask or hide my visual problem um, for a good part of my life. So now awareness is more people learn about it. You know, that's really going to help persons with disability traveling. And hopefully we'll you know, see that 15 percent represent represented evenly across uh, all airline flights in the near future. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're going to have a really fascinating conversation. We're really looking looking forward to that. But first, we have some aviation news from the past week. So let's get to that. Is everyone ready? Ready from the West. Sure. Ready from the Midwest. Ready. First item is from the American Journal of Transportation. 
United CEO says higher compensation for delays would make flying less safe. Rob, just what is the transportation department considering and what does Scott Kirby have to say about it? Well, I, I think we should uh, be very clear about the fact that the uh, the logic between uh, Mr. Kirby's comments about um, the uh, concern over safety uh, are, are a little hard for me to tie to what the DOT is expecting the airlines to uh, offer passengers. I mean, they want to give them uh, uh, compensation for uh, not just delays, but cancellations, covering the cost of the ticket, a hotel room, food, uh, that sort of thing. But, of course, uh, Mr. Kirby is saying that that's going to affect safety. And I read this and I thought, okay, I've got to see how he makes the link. And and what uh, uh, Mr. Kirby is saying is that uh, if, if crews have to start thinking about how their decisions to go back to the gate or not, you know, sit out on the ramp or wherever, uh, if they have to make those decisions based around money, thinking, oh, my gosh, my airline might get fined and have to pay a whole bunch of uh, cash to these people if they're late, uh, it'll it'll uh, f- kind of demand that these employees make stupid decisions. And I, I give the airline employees more credit than that. Uh, I really... Uh, think that uh, it certainly, once employees know that there's a, a fine or a potential hefty amount of cash that may be sent out to uh, travelers, uh, sure, I could see where they'd, they'd take that into consideration. But I don't believe for a minute that a, uh, a, a captain or a cabin attendant is going to do something absolutely silly uh, just because they're trying to save the company a buck. Um, especially not these days with the labor issues that have gone on in the uh, in the airline industry, uh, some of which have been put down a bit because there's so many contracts that have been signed. But again, and most of those are for pilots. They don't really uh, chat a whole lot about what the flight attendants have uh, gotten or not gotten or the uh, baggage handlers or the uh, res agents or anything like that. So But again, that's just my two cents. It's interesting. I was just reviewing a Harvard business case from, I think, around 2015, where it was a a ship between Jacksonville, Florida and San Juan, Puerto Rico, called the Alfaro. And uh, it sunk, unfortunately, with the loss of all 33 lives on board. But one of the contributing factors was the the goals of the business and how that impacted the captain's decisions to sail on through a hurricane. Um, and ultimately have a, a very bad outcome. So that's a very different case in a very different, uh, well, somewhat similar industry, actually. But, you know, I'd, I'd just refer you to that case to see where maybe that's where Scott's coming from. I, I do remember that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that when you read the report of of the uh, uh, the accident, you went, whoa, why did, they, why did he do this? Or why did he take that route trying to go around the, uh, I think he tried to go around the north end of the hurricane, uh, uh, you know, into the face of the wind, and it was moving to the north, and I thought, whoa. Well, he was trying to be on time, right? He was oh, that's to, right, that's right, yes. He, he was trying to be on time because his compensation was tied to on-time performance. 
I'm sure you know more about this, Mike, than I do, but uh, has there ever been an opportunity for a, a, a cockpit crew to be given bonuses based on on-time performance? I, I just don't know about that. Well, um, I was, I'm very proud to say I was part of the team at Continental in the mid-90s when they did the famous worst to first under Gordon Bethune. And not only pilots, but myself as a management person, we, we all received $50 bonuses per month if we met the on-time performance goals for Continental. And, uh, you know, that was pilots, flight attendants, mechanics, ramp people, management, etc. So, I mean, there's at least one case where, you know, people were thinking, um, this is a major goal of ours, reliability is a major goal. Safety, of course, I think is the number one value and values are different than goals in the industry. And I completely agree with you, Rob, and you are a pilot. You know, number one, a pilot's going to also, you know, self-protect himself. So you're not going to do something, you know, stupid. But uh, there's one example where bonuses, you know, were paid to everyone in the company based on reliability and on-time performance. I never heard about that. Wow. Were you there when Frank Lorenzo was there? Um, uh, I was not, I, I interviewed with Continental the day that Bob Ferguson was let go and it was the headline in the wall street journal. And I said, what kind of company am I coming to? <laughs> um, and I think Gordon Bethune started right around the same date I did. And, uh, no, that was, if we get into it later, I mean, that's one of the probably top five highlights in my career was being around and look, I was a very junior manager. I was, a uh, manager of about five analysts that time. So I, I did not have the sort of position I have today. But in fact, at Avianca the past three years, you know, we mimicked a lot of that playbook from the, the mid-90s Continental to turn our, our company around. Sure. Now, I think we should mention, too, that the uh, DOT is just considering increasing payments for uh, Good point. disruptions that are under the airline's control. So this isn't a done a done deal. Uh, it's, it's something that's being uh, considered. And uh, we see that Scott Kirby, anyway, has uh, voiced an opinion that, you know, can lead to, to bad decisions. It's, it's kind of hard to, to say or to uh, understand for certain what, what his motivation is, whether it's just, you know, he doesn't want to see the increased payouts or if he really truly believes there's a safety issue but obviously when it comes to aviation safety should should always come first yeah and and in the airline industry what we really want is um you know if there's compensation for things like that i want to be compensated for my doctor showing up late or my daughter just had cable you know installed in her apartment in london and they told her you know somewhere between 12 and 8 p.m somebody will come by so if if we if we can say to passengers we'll depart somewhere between 12 and 8 p.m um, I think Scott may have a different position, but we're 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 held to a little bit of a different standard in the airline industry. And for safety, maybe that's totally appropriate. But when you see other examples in businesses, um, it it does seem like this industry is treated much different than others. All right, let's uh, let's press on, and we have an item from Bloomberg. For $4,850, you can now bypass TSA lines at Atlanta's airport. So, Max, uh, what what is Private Suite, or PS, I guess, as it's now known? What are these guys up to? 
Well, I, I, I like to go out and uh, try all these things so that I'm speaking firsthand. So uh, last weekend I spent $4,800. No. <laughs> this, this is really amazing. It really caught my eye because I thought, you got to be kidding me. But uh, if you want to bypass the TSA line at Atlanta, and formerly you could do this in Los Angeles as well, all you have to do is pay 4800 bucks, and you can skip the line. And that's the cost per time that you do it. I mean, that's the, that's the most stunning part. When I saw that, I thought, oh, that's an annual membership and whatever. But no, that's, uh, that's per use. Now, just to be fair, uh, up to four people can uh, be included in that you know, $4,850. So that brings the cost down to about $1,200 uh, per person. Uh, but they say that uh, they take you to an exclusive a TSA checkpoint. So apparently that's been set up specifically for this uh, company, uh, which was formerly known as uh, Private Suite. Uh, they've now got a, a new name, which I can't see right now at the moment, but I'm sure it's in here somewhere. P.S. Uh, okay, P.S. But uh, their staff will escort you from aircraft door to aircraft door. Uh, they've got a little private, private little terminal that seats uh, 32 people. Uh, they will serve you food and cocktails. Uh, no word on whether they charge you extra for those. <laughs> no, I'm sure for that price it's uh, included. Um, and you, if you choose not to do the uh, the all access uh, membership, uh, which by the way you pay the membership fee and you still have a very large you know per visit charge, uh, you can do it. Um, as an individual person, one time for a thousand ninety-five bucks, and they plan to open additional private terminals at DFW in Texas and Miami International by twenty twenty-five. And you know, at first I was thinking, boy, this is a, a new service for the one percenters. But I realized this is really for the two percenters. The one point percenters are already on their private jets. So for the people, <laughs> you know, that are kind of the next tier down, you know, this this is for them. So anyway, it's uh, pretty amazing. I never would have thought that uh, there would be a market for this, but apparently there is. On their website, they uh, they refer to their service as a backdoor to your commercial aircraft private TSA and customs clearance, luxury spaces, and white glove service before and after your flight. And, you know, at first I'm thinking, yeah, just like maybe you, this is kind of ridiculous or, or for a certain class of individuals, you know, solely. But, you know, maybe it's a good idea because, uh, you know, people in that kind of income bracket are probably – celebrities and, you know, maybe people that don't have their own private jet, but uh, uh, corporate CEOs or something like that. Um, people that can't necessarily just show up at the airport terminal and, you know, mix in with uh, the, the general public. But the plane is a little bit more private, maybe. So, uh, you know, maybe it's a way for them to um, fly commercially without having to expose themselves to you know the the public at large uh, i don't know can, can you can you actually say that on this show about ceos jumping on an airplane and exposing themselves i don't think that i don't think that really is that's not family family values anyway uh i'm just trying to imagine how they get on the airplane the only thing i can think of is that they'd be coming up that outer stair you know when you walk down a jetway there's an extra set of you know, steel stairs that the uh, ramp guys go up and down with the bags and things like that. Uh, and that's the only thing I can think of is that they'd be coming up those stairs to, uh, to, to get into the airplane. But I mean, I, I, that just seems like 
a pretty, you know, I, I guess I'm wondering, Mike, how did they, how'd they price that? What's your gut? Did they just say, let's come up with a really enormous number and see if anybody buys? And if they do, then we know we've got our, our, uh, our, our fee. But uh, it just seems like such an odd number to me. Yeah, you're you're right, Rob. I can't get my head around your. Know, if that was an annual subscription fee, I could see people taking it. But a one time, um, you know, the domestic highest first class fare you could get is going to be less than that. So I, I don't think you know you'd get a lot of take up on that as a one time. But you're absolutely right about the stairs. You know, I've been privileged or lucky enough to to fly in airports around the world like Bahrain in uh, the Middle East where as a first class passenger they'll take you down those stairs to a chauffeur driven car to your own immigration service where you sit down while someone takes your passport stamps it for you gives you a drink and you go out the door so it's a great service but 4850 per shot um, I don't know about that even in the 2% range. Well, and I misspoke. These are not the 2%ers. The 1%ers own their jets. The 2%ers are on net jets. They charter. The 3%ers are flying the airlines. Oh, yeah. hey, getting closer to us, right? Exactly. So so what percent am I in if I pay for TSA pre-check? <laughs> I, An increasing percentage. A lot of smart those, percent. Those lines are getting longer these days. Um, yeah, that's true, but... Uh, all right. Um, hey, we have a couple of articles, one in Skift, one from CNN, uh, concerning um, air traffic controllers. And, Rob, last week, I think it was, we talked about the FAA hiring 1,500 controllers this year, new controllers, and they're hoping to hire 1,800 new controllers next year. But what's up? All's not good with the number of air traffic controllers? <laughs> well, I, I don't honestly think that the number of controllers has ever come back to normal since the Padco strike at 81. I mean, they've kind of drips and drabs and uh, that sort of thing. But uh, uh, the FAA has been pretty much behind the eight ball for years. I mean, we, we see, in fact, we saw it in this story. Uh, they talk about, well, if we just give them some more money, uh, they'll be able to you know, get this straight. Uh, I think it was uh, uh, Nick Gallo from the uh, A4A said, uh, you know, if we just give them a, enough this time, it'll go, but it's still going to take time. Uh, and the one part of hiring, I think I mentioned this last week that people don't realize is that if you hire 1,800 controllers, maybe if they're lucky, maybe 75% might get through all the training. Maybe it's a little less than that. We'd probably have to talk to somebody from NATCA about that. But uh, uh, because training a controller is is a very, very long process. Um, if they work in a small VFR tower, I mean, like when I used to work at Meg's, I mean, it took somebody nothing at all to, you know, you could be certified in, in three or four months because, there just wasn't much traffic there. But when you're talking about somebody uh, at a at a New York Tracon or, or NorCal or uh, at O'Hare, I mean, it takes years. And, uh, and again, some people just, they might get halfway through it and go, you know, I, I just haven't got it. I can't keep up with this, this pace and, uh, you know, or for whatever. And they just drop out. And so, 
sure we're hiring, but I think what I would feel better talking about, and nobody does, is how many new controllers have we put on the, say, in the in the, uh, prof- uh, I'm sorry, the certified ranks every year. Uh, that would be a more accurate uh, measurement of of what they need to do. And of course, I understand the airlines. I mean. The two things that the airlines always mention is if you're late, it's either it's either weather or it's air traffic control. And uh, I, I'm just telling you what I've heard over the years. But uh, so, you know, I mean, I understand that the airlines need someone to point the finger at when something goes wrong. Um, and Southwest wishes it had that last Christmas when their their system kind of kind of tanked. And uh, but it. Again, the number of controllers uh, in in the New York area uh, specifically is way, way, way down from where it should be. I think they're they're looking at sixty percent of normal staffing. You're right, Rod. There was that report. I think I want to say it was early summer. It came out of the yeah. one of the U.S. departments. I don't know if it was Department of Transportation, but the two numbers I remember out of that is what you're talking about. It was three years to train a new controller and that uh, the New York was at 55% staffing right now. And the, the third to put into that to give some context is during the two peak years of COVID, there was no training going on. So Excellent. for two years, it was, it was exactly shut down. And now you're trying to ramp up with a three-year ramp up time. Um, you know, it's not a pretty picture in terms of getting to hundred percent staffing levels. Well, and in addition, that's a good point that Michael made there because I completely forgot about that. But uh, also the, the people working right now are working often working six day weeks and they're working 10 hour days. And it's not, it's not, would you like to come in for an extra few hours? It's mandatory in many of these facilities. And boy, I got to tell you, you get, you know, you're working, arrivals in some place or departures and or, or you know it, the satellite fee oh my god two or three or four hours at a time and you're you're just you're ragged you're just ragged and and of course when i was there the traffic was a little less than it is now but then no wonder when the weather gets bad the whole system just goes to goes in the in in the uh, trash bin because you only have so many people to move airplanes around so many different places before somebody's no, you, no, you, you, got, you can't go that way. No, how about or, I, and and again, you you just don't have enough bodies to do all the uh, all the thinking and all the talking. So, U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg mayor says Pete. that <laughs> yeah, former Mayor Pete, uh, Secretary Pete says that the uh, air traffic controller shortage it's going to be a journey. Uh, meanwhile, the article points out other executives think that other industry executives think that this is probably a five-year program. So the, the the question to me is: so what do we do about it? Right? Do we just wring our hands and and wait for things to, you know, levels to get back to where they need to be slowly, or is there anything that can be done about it? Uh, Nick Calio with A4A had a couple of suggestions. One is he said they proposed that universities with air traffic controller programs should be allowed to provide the certification courses. And he also mentions that the FAA should 
next summer, especially around New York, lower flight levels, which I think they did this past summer. You know, are those good solutions? Reduce the number of movements. Right, mm. right. I think it was 10% over the past summer, if I remember. I right. think I called them Gallo. You're right, it's Calio. Calio, well, That was yeah. close. But, <laughs> but, you know, to your other point about the, uh, uh, the, the universities, uh, there are quite a few community colleges that have had, uh, that still have air traffic control programs. And prior to about, uh, I know it was before COVID, but maybe four years ago, maybe five, when somebody went through an air traffic control program at a, uh, a community college that was already certified by the FAA, when somebody would apply to the FAA, they would get an extra uh like an extra five points on their evaluation as to whether they were going to be uh, uh, worthy or not. I mean, as a vet, I used to get that. Uh, in fact, I did get that when I, I hired on with FAA. And uh, But then FAA changed all of the, the uh, system of how they evaluate and how they hire, and I'm, I'm pretty sure they did away with all of those extra points that they used to give people from these, uh, uh, these college programs. Uh, I, I would have thought it would have been a no-brainer for them to say, you know what, maybe we better bring that back because uh, we could use all the help we can get. All right. We have something from AOPA. NTSB says Snapchat post resulted in fatal crash. Rob, this is, what, distracted piloting? Well, l- let me ask my, my cohort... Max T, what did you think of this story? Oh, I think it's a, a, a major problem that I see from time to time. Uh, and it's not just in airplanes. You know, People are so anxious to take selfies, they sometimes fall into the Grand Canyon. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're going to see more and more of these kinds of accidents. And, and, and the stuff I see t- sometimes in the cockpit really bothers me. This was a case of a uh, Cessna 182. They were doing low-level pipeline patrolling, and the NTSB um, believes that pilot was distracted by posting something on, on Snapchat, which caused them to kind of lose, lose awareness of where they were, and they ended up striking a radio tower guy wire, and uh, both the pilot and the, pas- and the passenger were, were killed. It's kind of an indirect thing because, uh, interestingly, um, Snapchat deletes posts after a, uh, I forget how long, 48 hours or something like that. So they don't actually have the post, but the NTSB did some interesting calculating based on what uh, other people who had seen the post said and when it came out and, and uh, you know, where the tower was and everything. And I think, if I recall correctly from the article, they calculated or estimated that the the pilot uh, sent this post out 35 seconds before hitting the the guy wire. Yeah, <laughs> whether it's in the car or especially in the plane, don't post. Well, in, in fact, I was going to add, I don't think the pilot had anybody on board. I think it was just him. I thought, it, I thought there were two fatalities. Um, no, I believe there was just one. Okay. But but what I was going to mention, too, and, and Max T knows this, but when, when you have a uh, in the map that the... Uh, that AOPA put up uh, that they got from NTSB, it, it shows the uh, 
uh, it traces the uh, uh, pipeline. And of course, with those kinds of waypoints, you can put that in the uh, in a Garmin three thousand, and and it will you know you can follow it with uh, you know it, stay away from the the bad part of the uh, of the radio towers, uh, and it, it just helps with navigating. Now I don't know if this airplane had a had an autopilot in it. My guess is, if it was a pipeline patrol, yeah, maybe not. It's probably a you know, an old beat up 182 that somebody, uh, you know, that the pipeline company owns and, and basically the, the pilots out there trying to just, you know, fly the airplane and look down and say, is there anything that looks unusual along the pipeline? Uh, I, I did, I've never done any pipeline patrol. I don't know, uh, from, let's see, how high was he? Uh, he was pretty low. I think when he, he had to be in order to hit a guy wire, but, uh, I think they normally fly less than a thousand AGL, which is why it's really important that they know where they are, not just where they are, but where the obstacles are in that area. And uh, apparently the pilot either didn't really understand what obstacles were out there, or he just, like you said, he just kind of was so enamored with how cool it was that he was flying this uh, airplane on pipeline patrol that uh, he forgot. And I, I can't imagine uh, the, the thought of hitting a guy where we had a, a flight for life uh, helicopter out here in Chicagoland that hit a guy wire at night in, in the drizzle, uh, you know, trying to trying to transport uh, a patient. And of course, it just of course, the air uh, copter and the, uh, uh, the the doctor and the uh, flight nurse were were killed, and it's uh, it's just oh, I can't imagine being down anywhere and being first thing you would look at is okay, what's the top of the tower? Okay, I can't go any lower than that because there might be wires out here. They don't all need wires, but it's the first thing you think of. I'm not going any lower than that if I'm going to be anywhere close to a radio tower, but. I, this this was a young kid. He only had a couple hundred hours, so this is probably his first paid flying job. And unfortunately, it turns out to be his last. Yeah, really unfortunate. In a lesson there. All right, from civilbeat.org, electric sea gliders could come to Hawaii as soon as 2026. Max T, what are these electric sea gliders? Well, that's a good question. Uh, they come from, and by the way, I, I pulled up a separate article because this particular one, yeah, it talks a little bit uh, kind of high level, but I wanted to know a little bit more about the the company. Uh, but they are from a class of, uh, of, of craft called WIGS, Wing in Ground Effect Craft WIGS. And the, the manufacturers of these are pushing really hard to say, oh, no, no, this is not an airplane. Uh, in fact, I, I loved one of the, uh, the quotes uh, which said that, uh, you know, they were concerned that being subject to FAA regulations would pose insurmountable economic problems, killing an emergency sector, some developers argue. Um, so basically, these are uh, winged boats that fly in ground effect. Uh, and so they, according to the, the company that's going to make these, they said that they will speeds up, have speeds up to 160 knots while remaining 10 to 50 feet above the waves. And they also have said that 
Operating a sea glider will be more akin to driving a boat than piloting an aircraft. Roll, pitch, altitude, and tr- the transitions between the hull-borne, foil-borne, and wing-borne models will all be managed by the Digital Control and Flight Envelope Protection System, which is a, another way of saying, hey, we will have automated this so much that an idiot can fly these things, uh, which means we can then pay them you know, less as well. Uh, but I can't, I'm, I'm probably pronouncing this wrong, uh, Mokaluli Airlines. I- I was going to ask if anybody else could pronounce that because I can't. I think it's Mokalele. Mokalele, I, I believe, yeah. Very good. Only airlines serving residents of Molokai and Lanai in Hawaii as a new parent company, and they are uh, expecting to bring service in the coming years to uh, you know, fly port to port 60 feet over the ocean to connect some of these locations. And uh, Surf Air, which we've uh, talked about a number of different times in the past, which is, uh, they, they describe them as an L.A.-based electric air travel company. Hmm. The surf air I knew used to fly a lot of Pilatuses around, which are not electric. Uh, but they have acquired the uh, parent company and have uh, said that they're going to uh, bring these into service. Now, the ones that they're planning to use are to be manufactured by a Boston-based, actually, I think they're in Rhode Island-based uh, startup called Regent Craft. And they hope to have all the approvals by late 2026 to uh, 2020. Now, the Coast Guard has gotten in the act, and they actually uh, put uh, put out a request in 2022 for public comment about how these aircraft might benefit the offshore energy industry. And they ask uh, if the FAA perhaps should be involved in uh, certifying these and uh, providing operating rules. I haven't found any comments anywhere from the FAA, so it sounds like this is still an open question. But uh, it's kind of kind of like a hovercraft that's even higher off the uh, the water, and so it'll be fascinating to see. Do these things really come to pass? Um, and and there have been some in the past. Uh, Russia had some back in the '60s, uh, up through the uh, the '90s. Uh, but these are certainly not you know widespread around the world. Hey, if it doesn't need jet A fuel, it has to be looked at from this industry. So yeah, well, they have actually flown a technology demonstrator uh, about a year ago. It, a quarter scale, 18-foot wingspan, uh, the prototype. The, the full scale, uh, they expect to be a 12-passenger sea glider. They named Viceroy uh, with a 65-foot wingspan. But um, as I said, they did fly this. We have a, there's a video. We can put a link to that in the, in the show notes if you want to see what it looks like. And... I mean, it looks a lot like uh, sort of the typical, well, it's not a VTOL, but it looks a lot like the sort of the EVTOL kind of thing. I think it's got four electric motors on each wing, on the leading edge of each wing. And at least from the quarter scale model, it looks to me a lot more like an airplane than a boat. It starts in the water. Yeah, that's fine. And it has uh, like hydrofoils, which I think retract. Uh, But anyway, it starts in the water starts uh, forward motion gets up on the um, on the hydrofoils and then out of the water and and fly so i mean it does look more like an airplane than a boat to me but what would you call a hovercraft <laughs> well this thing at least has wings with with motors and propellers on it you know it, it looks like an airplane it flies like an airplane it just takes off out of the water yeah it looks a lot like a seaplane yeah it does i think it is i think i would call it a seaplane 
But interesting, check the show notes for the uh, the video. You can see what you think it is. And and when they land, I'm just wondering if they say something like, we'll be landing now, or dive, dive. There's your clue. I'm just, okay. I'm if just, they're saying dive, 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 that's not a good sign. Yeah. No, probably not. But at least, hey, at least I didn't say something really stupid when you said it was mock, what did you call the airline? Maka... Makalele? Makalele. Okay. Makalele. Not to be confused with the ukulele. See, well, I could have said something like that, but I didn't. <laughs> I just want Mike to know that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in control You're a professional. Here. I'm a professional. Yeah. You got it. That's what they say. You know, and Rob, the guy has been listening since 2008. You can't bluff. Yeah, that's <laughs> probably true. Okay. I was just going to add, you know, there have been so many startup airlines over the years that have planned to use seaplanes, and so few of them actually, you know, remain in service. I think that, you know, there's a lot of issues. You know, the, the water is not uh, uniformly flat and smooth like a runway. And I think people, when they start these seaplane airlines, they kind of forget that, oh, there are going to be days where yeah, you just can't put these things on the water, or if you do, you're you're going to flip them over. So I just kind of wonder what, what their backup plan is going to be, because I would expect that uh, you know, there, there will be far more times when these seaplane-like devices can't fly than normal aircraft can't fly. Yeah, and as an add-on to that, I'd love to know what the maintenance expense, expense line will look like on a seaplane. <laughs> Especially one that's you in know, salt water, huh? Yeah. You know, when I, when I, worked in, I worked in India for a year and a half with Indigo Airlines there, and uh, SpiceJet had announced a major plan for seaplanes. And, you know, the question from our boardroom, should we look at it? And no one could figure out what the maintenance would cost. Hmm. But it was, it was a solution in India due to the limitation of the airports with a lot of rivers, um, you know, they thought it was a clever idea to be able to serve some of the remote towns, but very big population towns in India that are on rivers. Hmm. And did it fly? You know what? I've kind of moved geography and never followed up to see if Spice has ever gotten any of those in the air, but I don't think so. All right. Well, again, we're speaking with Mike Switek. Mike, how do we empathize with air travelers who are legally blind or, or have very low vision? I was trying to kind of put my head in that space. I, I mean, if, if I imagine walking into an airport blindfolded, I think I'd be terrified. What can you tell us about some of the, the challenges for air travelers with disabilities? So empathize is a great word, Max. And, uh, you know, one thing we can't regulate in this world is can't regulate kindness, empathy, common sense. And those are probably the three things that blind, low vision travelers like myself need the most. When, when I was given this problem at Avianca about a year ago and said, Mike, you know, why don't you see what you can do to raise the standards of passengers with disabilities? The first thing we did is we looked at our customer journey map and a customer journey map at an airline is looking from booking to getting to the airport, checking in, checking baggage, getting to the gate, maybe using a lounge, flying on the plane, landing, collecting your baggage. At Avianca, we had 27 points in our customer journey map. Some airlines have more, some have less. In reality, it's, it's thousands of touch points. 
So we put that on the horizontal axis. And then on the vertical axis, we said, okay, those four main categories of visual, hearing, mobility, and neurodiversity, what are the different pain points across those 27 journey points? And they're different for all disabilities. They're different within the disability. You know, I am a low vision blind person. Only 15% of blind people are 100% black blindness or dark blindness. But the pain points for me, um, it's booking, you know, very difficult to, to use some of the mobile apps, et cetera, especially when it's the drop down boxes or, or fill this in, you know, getting from the curb to the special service request desk, which every airline has to maintain um, a special service request. And that's the tool that you use in your, you know, your PNR, your passenger notification record that says, I, I have a disability. I may, I may or will need some special help. Um, you know, but yeah, getting through that journey. So again, if I'm traveling by myself, you know, it is the law that an airline has to provide an escort to take me to the gate. Now that person may also be pushing a couple of wheelchairs at the same time. Um, but that is a, a really, you know, think of the anxiety you have when you hand over your wallet to a TSA agent and hope it's going to show up on the other side. Imagine when you can't even see where, where that's coming through. Um, you know, boarding of the plane is a pain point. You know, most airlines call persons with disability to board early, but it's imme- immediately followed by everybody else board. And, uh, you know, I can't even find where I'm supposed to go. You know, on board, here, here's one most people don't think about with blind, low vision passengers. Um, but many people in wheelchairs dehydrate themselves for flights because they don't want to have to use the restrooms mm. for be- because they may not even be able to get to it with the in-aisle wheelchairs that are available on planes. You know, blind, low-vision people. For me, it's less on the plane, but in the airport, um, I don't want to go into one of these complex maze-like restroom areas where I can't see what I'm touching. Um, So I I try not to use airport bathrooms and wait until I'm on board. And then, of course, you can imagine something as simple as collecting your baggage if you can't see your bag. But the great news is uh, through awareness, through training, through process change, through digital technology and hardware, you know, these problems are being solved for travelers like me and, and that other, you know, um, 1.5 billion, 1.3 billion people around the world with disabilities. How much of this is motivated by regulatory action and how much um, from within the industry internally in terms of making these kinds of changes and addressing these issues? Yeah, it's not a zero, it's not zero percent. It's not a hundred percent. Um, but you know, we, we would like to, um, serve these, these passengers, but of course we want to do it in a, you know, low cost, high impact way using all five of those tools I mentioned before, you know, regulation is ideally a last step, right? Ideally you don't need regulation. So I was, I was on a panel recently at a red cabin, um, in event in Seattle talking about cap, cabin interior designs. And there's a, a group, um, that believes they will have a, ultimately have a solution for getting a wheelchair on board a plane. Um, and I think that's fantastic. And I think the industry will do it. I don't know if it'll be in two years, five years or 10 years. It's a, you guys are engineers or have worked, you know, you know, the, the, the certification you need to get an aircraft certified. And now with a, up to a 600 pound wheelchair, 
inside the cabin that has to meet the 15G test, et cetera, is a pretty big obstacle. But you know, on regulation, if, if it's needed because nothing else is working, then it's a potential solution. But let's not regulate before we have solutions, and let's not regulate without getting the full dialogue with airlines, airports, consumers, etc. So regulation has its place, but it's not the only tool to get this solved. Do you know, I'm curious, when we talk about regulation and, and uh, people that are visually impaired getting on and off an airplane, does the FAA, I don't know if you know the answer to this, does the FAA, uh, when it measures the amount of time that it takes to empty a cabin in an emergency, make any allowance for the fact that there may be uh, a few people that are either visually impaired or, or have difficulty walking or, or anything like that. I've never heard any mention of that. Yeah. If, if you can help me find the answer, Rob, I'd love to know as well. I'm investigating that as well as, uh, you know, when they do the test is, is it 150 able bodied people or is it the demographic of what you'd find on a typical flight? Um, but you know, I'm also a little bit, you know, cautious there that that could be used for, for other, other means to try to do these tests or redo these tests. But it, it's a good question, but I could tell you as a blind, low vision person, I think I will move just as fast as anybody else. Um, but one of the key there's for me is to really know where that exit is and to really count those rows that they tell you to do. So, and, and in fact, I will tell you in, in low light situations, or if there's smoke, I may be the best person to follow because, uh, I don't need my eyes to navigate. Um, I'm used to doing that all the time. So it's really an interesting paradox. And in certain cases, you know, low vision people make it off a plane quicker, um, than, than others. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's something that, you know, I want to find out how those tests are done. And it sounds like you do as well. So please help me in that effort. It's a very interesting point. Yes, yeah, thank yeah you. it is. It is. Are the airlines um, receptive generally? I mean, I imagine it varies a lot, but are, are they receptive to having this, these kinds of dialogues? Dialogues on persons with disabilities? Yes, yes. Well, you know, here's, here's what I found in the, in the past year. And again, I've been in this industry since July 1992. I've worked full-time for eight different airlines around the world. I've done some consulting. Um, you know, this is the first time I've really done a deep dive on it because my CEO sitting across the table f- from me for, you know, endless amounts of time said, Mike, aren't you the pers- perfect person to get involved in accessibility? But where it sits in most airlines is there's a lot of people in the operations part of the business that understand it. Um, there's a lot of people in the legal departments and regulatory that understand it, you know, but it just hasn't been an issue that's raised itself to most of the C-level suites or the boardrooms. Mm. Um, and that's what gives, you know, my current airline a bit of an advantage on this is we talk about this, you know, at least a couple times a month, an accessibility issue comes up and, uh, you know, my fellow C-level people and my CEO are quite attentive to what I have to say. So I'm really proud to say, you know, I have this unique position of a person with a disability, but one that's also been trying to make airlines financially sustainable over the last 30 years and trying to find those common sense, smart solutions. Now, Mike, you've said that your legal blindness has 
become a competitive edge for you. Is that in the context of of what you're just describing? You know, you've been recognized as the the voice with this kind of perspective, or are you thinking of something different? That, that's part of it. Thinking of something different, but you know, talk about the news segment. Well, I guarantee you, I'm not using Snapchat. Yeah. Um, so you know, not using Snapchat means I'm not distracted, which means I'm not going to you know, happen what happened on that, on that plane. Now you don't want me to be a pilot though, right? So most people, as soon as I say, I work in an airline, say, are you a pilot? I'm like, I don't think you want a low vision pilot. <laughs> right. Um, but, but using that Snapchat as an example, um, one of my superpowers is I really listen. I'm not distracted by what's on the, the slide. Cause I'm not even looking at the PowerPoint slide. I'm listening to a presenter and asking questions based on what they've told me. And, that's pretty unusual in a boardroom um, and probably pretty unusual in most meetings. I've also acquired this amazing skill of memorization because since I can remember, you know, being three, four years old, I didn't know that other people had better vision than me. I just assumed everybody did what I did, which was memorize every step, every stair, every turn left, every turn right. You know, I could still go to my grammar school and probably find the bathroom by remembering 10 steps, make a left, go up five stairs, make a right, go down, you know, another 20 steps, go into the, you know, the right. So I think that's really been a, you know, a brain teasing question I've always posed for myself every day of every year. And that's given me a stronger memorization mindset. So at least from the listening and the memorizing, those are a couple of superpowers I think I've attained. And uh, yeah, now that I use a mobility cane, I'm pretty recognizable. So think of the advantage of just telling people, yeah, meet me at the airport and I'll be the guy with a white mobility cane. And uh, end of story, they find me pretty fast. Yeah. yeah. A mobility cane, that's just the usual kind of yeah. cane that you see. Mine is white, it folds up. Red on the bottom is, is, I think, except for in Germany, my understanding, an international symbol of a visual impairment. Um, but, you know, this is where awareness is so important, and that's why thank you so much for inviting me on this podcast, because the more we talk about it, the more people are aware. So you may see a person next week and say, ah, that looks like a mobility cane that Mike was talking about, where previously I've had people approach me and say, are you going mountain climbing later? Are you missing your other ski pole? Um, and it's, no, this, this is a tool to help me, um, you know, wayfind or help me to, you know, find myself in, in places. And even those, the, the people who help with the special services, I'm sad to report that I had one recently, wasn't aware what the mobility cane was. And was actually grabbing it and treating it more like a leash to pull me by, <laughs> where, I, where, I, where I had to politely say, you know, I use this to tap the wall, to find stairs in front of me, um, you know, to find obstacles. You know, please don't touch it without permission. Um, and this, again, is that common sense. And, and I'd say the same thing for a person in a wheelchair. Don't go push them. Ask them permission if you can touch their chair. You know, don't yell at a deaf person or a hearing impaired person. Ask what you can do to help. Um, you know, don't speak slowly to somebody if you think they have neurodiversity. Talk to them in a normal speed un until you know the issues raised in a, in a different way. So, just this awareness of persons with disability is really the best tool we have to improve, I think, the lives and look, make everyone else comfortable. Because my hypothesis is a lot of flight attendants don't approach me simply because 
they're not sure what to say and they'd rather err on the safe side of saying nothing, you know, in the U S in particular, which has become a very, um, you know, politically correct environment. People are afraid to now approach me because they don't want to make an error. And, and to me, that's a shame because I always remember, you know, I'll finish this answer with this thing. I remember from my sister-in-law, she said, um, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. Hmm. So if people aren't willing to make an error, they don't learn. And, uh, you know, I, I, I hope we can get over that. And, and I hope, you know, conversations like this help inform everyone else on the planet. Mike, it, it's kind of funny. Um, my mother had polio and hmm. was at wheelchair bound and, and talking about not touching the wheelchair. Um, one of the funniest stories I've always told about my father and my when I ran the hobby shop at the mall, my mother and father came over on a Friday night, and my mother was in a wheelchair, and my father was pushing her. Well, my mother wanted to get out of the wheelchair to look at something, um, and she was distance she couldn't walk, but she could take a few. Well, she tripped falling out of the wheelchair. And much to and and suddenly everybody's rushing around trying to get to my mother to help her to get into the wheelchair, and that was probably the worst thing to do, right? And my father is standing over my mother, saying things like, "Oh, she'll be fine. Let her get in the <laughs> chair herself. She'll be fine. She'll be okay." Um, I, I'm and I came around the corner and um, I swear to God, half of the mall, I think, suddenly developed pitchforks and or knives. They were going to kill the man who would not let the poor woman get into the wheelchair. <laughs> and, and I finally came out and said, no, my mother's fine. And I helped her to the wheelchair. But if you don't know where to grab or whatever to you you might be helping but it's probably not it's just it was it the truth was it was easier for my mother to get herself into the wheelchair by herself because she knew what to do you know and somebody trying to help so i can really empathize with the fact that you know and my mother was a lot like you um mike where my mother when Young kids would ask my mother why she walked with a limp. My mother would tell her about polio and mm. and, and to demystify it, you know. And those kids walked at work, you know. Those adults walked away knowing more. And, you know, the next time they will, you know, as a general rule, people are just curious, not necessarily um, mean-spirited, but they just and, – and, and my mother always found it interesting because kids – have no filter. So they just ask the questions that come naturally to them. And my mother gave them the honest answers. You know, when she was a little girl, she got sick. And because of that, she walked with a limp. Yeah, that's a great story on building awareness and uh, honesty. And again, just ask the simple question. And, and I learned this from Delta. I have to give Delta Airlines credit. You know, they train their people just to say, hey, is there something I could do to help you? No assumption about what that may be put a very simple question and it works. And, and I'd simply add to that as well, you know, as, as a, a low vision person, if I go to a restaurant, you know, generally it goes something like to the waiter, you know, I don't need a menu cause I can't read it. So just give it to my wife. But that's often where 50% of the time I'm a non-person then, right? And that's, what's really f frustrating. And I think, you know, would have been frustrating to your, your mother 
is we just want to be treated as people. We don't want to be treated as monsters. We don't want to be treated as unintelligent. You know, I simply can't see. It doesn't mean I'm mean. It doesn't mean I'm not intelligent. Um, but a lot of those waiters, as soon as I say that, um, they'll say to my wife, what does he want for dinner? You know, they stop addressing me. You know, this is a very common complaint of, of deaf people who use sign language interpreters. People will talk to the interpreter rather than talking to the deaf person. And that's very rude on the other side of the person who, who is deaf to say, I'm in the room. You know, my interpreter is just like a piece of hardware on your computer. Um, so the more we hear these stories, the better we're going to be. And, and again, in the air, which can be a tense and anxiety ridden, um, part of people's lives anyway, it just gets compounded by these issues. So we have a big problem or a big opportunity to, to solve here, but I'm really proud of the work we're doing, you know, at Avianca and the, and the work that's being done in the industry. Mike, I think you're on a mission and, you know, a, a very, um, worthy mission, uh, there's probably a better word for that, but uh, that's that's what comes comes to mind right now. But how? What is your strategy for executing that mission? I guess we're lucky. Some of us in life, this just happens to us, right? It's not something by design. It's just happened that this is my mission now, and it's something I will do into well, I, what I hope will be semi-retirement. But the strategy, you know, there's always a what. Um, and there's a why and there's a how to strategy. So the what's pretty sim simple, right? We want to make it more affordable and easier and, you know, better um, service for peace, people with disabilities when they fly. You know, the how is a couple of things. There's always the sort of um, action how of, you know, when you think about strategy, how do you win at the game of Monopoly? Well, you play very aggressively. Um, how do you win at the game of risk? Well, there you play a little more cautiously. Um, you know, in this, I think the real how is just getting this word out. It's that we need to get people comfortable with the differences and diversity of, of people. On the more practical strategy, again, it goes to those five tools I mentioned earlier. Let's build awareness. Let's get better training for employees. And by the way, awareness and training shouldn't have to start when someone joins an airline. Awareness should start in grade school, hmm. right? And we're seeing this more and more in the country. You know, there's not a special school for people. They they interact in the same school. So five-year-olds learn, hey, this kid next to me is in a wheelchair. This kid over there can't hear as well. So I think that's really good for society, and this is a society issue. But awareness, training, changing processes. You know, I'll tell you something we did simple you know, at Avianca, we operate a lot of our flights in Central America and Colombia. Some of the, you know, gates will be remote gates or hard stands. If there's a choice of, of two planes we can send to the hard stand, we simply now try to send the plane that has the most persons with disability on it to the jet bridge and send the other one to the hard stand. Because whether you're blind or in a wheelchair, the hard stand's a lot more difficult. So that's a very small change in process. Um, then there's the digital technology as our fourth tool to do this. And the amazing things I can do at my smartphone now, there's, there's two companies out there, one called Ira and one called Be My Eyes. Um, bad for them, they haven't built a big enough moat around their business model. But I take my smartphone, if I'm by myself in an airport now or a hotel, this is you know across all of travel, I can get my wife on the other end, turn the camera on by voice activation and say, hey, Debbie. Um, what 
hotel room am I standing in front of? Is this room 110 or room 120? Ah, can you take me towards 120? Um, you know, I'm look, I could be in a restaurant and I could put it on and say, can you look through and tell me what's on the menu? This is an amazing age we live in with digital technology to improve the lives of, of people with disabilities. And then the fifth and hardest tool we have is kind of changing the hardware. Um, so making that wheelchair go on board the cabin, being able to load it better, you know, having Braille on aircraft, which is something both United and Avianca did recently, um, which, which is fantastic. Um, but that hardware takes a little time. You know, and the message here for me is let's let's share in the cost and the funding of these solutions, because some of you have worked, you know, with airline manufacturers. You know, my biggest pet peeve with them is don't look at disability as a profit center. So please, I hope you're not going to send me, you know, a piece of paper to resort of certify planes when I want to put in the accessible lavatory and say, you know, pay me a hundred thousand dollars. Nothing's really changed. But to get the plane recertified, I need this piece of paper. So really, we've, we've got some tools. The strategy is just to keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. Persistence is going to win here. Hmm. Fantastic. Mike, this has been a really good conversation. In some ways, it reminds me of an episode that Brian Coleman and, and Micah did on the, the Journey is the Reward, where they looked at stuttering and the challenges of that and how other people react and respond to people that that stutter. And it was an extremely eye-opening listen. If I can find the uh, the episode, I'll, I'll put that in, I'll link to that in the show notes. I'm not, I don't know if I can find the specific episode. But, you know, another area where similarly to this conversation, you know, awareness is a big part of it and having compassion and knowing what to do and what not to do and, you know, all of those things. So, yeah. And, and here's the, the really, you know, we mentioned that 15% of the population, you know, um, I think it was David who mentioned his grandmother. Yeah, it doesn't take long for any of us on the planet to say, Hey, I know somebody who has a disability. Hmm. It's, it's a lot of people. And, and that's good news because it means, you know, most people are behind this. Most people are willing to maybe have their airfare be a little, you know, few dollars higher if, if it's truly accessible to everybody. And, and that is the right thing to do. You know, transportation is a need nowadays, not just a want. Um, you know, so we're, we're committed to solving this. But, you know, we, we do need some time. We do need creative minds. And we need people to talk about it. So if we can do those things. I think we'll make great inroads and, uh, you know, I'm excited for the next generation of, of persons with disability, but I know this is the airplane geeks podcast. You know, I've, I've worked at airlines, United continental air, New Zealand, Qatar airways, Alitalia, Latam, Indigo and Avianca and now Abra group. So, uh, um, I'm happy if you guys throw me some airline history questions at me or, you know, <laughs> you, you talk about personalities. You know, I've, I've worked directly with Akbar Al-Bakr and huh. Rob Fife and Enrique Cueto and Rakesh Gangwal. I, I've had this incredible privilege to work with some of the real personalities in this business over my airline experience journey. Mike, maybe we're going to have to have you come back. Hey, I'd love to. I, I, I can see why you guys have been hooked on this for 15 years. 
what a great way to spend an evening talking about uh, airplanes. It is. It's wonderful. We're, we're very blessed. So, again, Mike, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And I think this is some great information and some um, you know, things that make you think maybe about things that, you know, we might not have otherwise. So thanks so much for that. No, thank you for the opportunity. Let's talk about what's up with the geeks. And Max Trescott, what have you been up to lately? Well, uh, I told you folks uh, last week that I had just uh, flown with a client in his uh, new Cirrus, bringing it back from uh, Knoxville. And then a week later, I found myself up in uh, Seattle. Uh, a gentleman needed to, uh, well, a guy who was uh, buying a, a jet. And so we have been uh, doing some training in the twin, and he had a meeting. So we thought, hey, let's do some training on the way up to Washington for his uh, meeting and back along the way. And it was a great trip, about four hours in the Diamond DA-40. We landed at Boeing Field, which I've been to, I think, once before. Remarkable thing is we were at an FBO at the south end of the airport, and we were ridiculously close to the to the runway. And we just kept seeing these large monster, you know, Boeings of all types, you know, flying, uh, you know, different colors, different liveries. I took a picture of one that I had never seen before, and somebody said, oh, that's that's a Chinese airline. So. It was uh, it was great fun, uh, you know, being there. And then just today, I had a text message from a gentleman who I've uh, flown with in the past, who owns a Diamond DA sixty two, and he said I. I heard on your podcast episode 292 that you went to Washington last week. Were you the one following me in on the ILS? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, my gosh, we were chasing a diamond, uh, and we were just about matched in speeds. And, yes, that was <laughs> that was us following you. And he was – I, I didn't recognize the call sign, but I had remembered it. It was kind of distinctive, ended in Delta Delta. But when I first spotted him, my concern was that we were going to overrun him until I checked his speed and found out no we were pretty closely matched and he had similar concerns and so he'd been looking at us for a while as we were cleared along the same route so anyway kind of a funny coincidence that uh, two people from the bay area ended up landing at uh, boeing field at almost the same time had you been in the diamond before yes i i, I do a fair amount of tra training in the the diamond da42 he was in a 62 which goes ever so slightly faster it's a larger aircraft i see okay and Rob, what are you up to these days? I'm uh I can't wait for this show to be over because <laughs> I have to hurry up, go home, go to bed because I've got to get up early in the morning to catch a flight out of Midway to go to Los Angeles. Uh through of all places, I couldn't get a direct flight. To, for all places I have to connect through Vegas. And which means that the flight's going to be absolutely jammed. But I'm going out there for probably the worst possible experience in a person's life. Uh, not, I mean, my daughter's fine. I mean, she lives out there. But we're both going to experience a painful episode because she needs to buy a car. Oh, my God. And I cannot think of anything I would rather not get on an airplane to go visit my daughter for is buying uh, buying a car, and I just <sighs> not looking forward to it, huh? Rob, why didn't you just buy a car in Chicago and send it to her, um, or drive because, it out there yourself? Yeah, uh, 
No, you don't. <laughs> David, something you don't, don't no, you don't know me. I, I last about an hour in a car. I mean, uh, maybe an hour and a half, but that's about it. I mean, how many hours would that be to L.A.? Probably 20 easily. Tw- yeah, I was going to say Probably. two or maybe three driving days. Uh, no, I, I couldn't do it. So, uh, But she, she has no experience. You know, she took one of our old cars when she, she went to school out in L.A. And so she said, I, I don't know what to do do at a car dealer or even a used car dealer should i should i be afraid i said oh be very afraid (laughs) (laughs) i mean i don't want to use the word swindler but uh you can't always trust used car dealers so but anyway so so i'm sure it'll be fine so you were you're you're headed to lax mike you were you were there recently for an interesting event. I was. I was there for the Cranky Flyer Dork Fest on Saturday. Yeah. Um, a week ago, I was uh, in between Bogota and Seattle, and thought I'd drop in and see some old friends like your old colleagues, Courtney Miller, and well, I'm Dan Webb, Courtney Miller, Brett Snyder. Dan Webb was there. Dan Webb was there. Oh my gosh. He's wow. a grown-up now as well. <laughs> oh, well, all right. Let's, let's not get crazy here. I mean, come on. Uh, think about that, Max. When, when Dan first came on the show, wasn't he still in high school? Yeah, I think it was his, maybe his last year in high school or, or junior year. Or, le- or at least college. I think he might have been at Bryant College. And he was the only guy in college, I think, who had pinups of uh, U.S. Airways posters. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, that's our Dan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he's yeah, but 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 a funny place for a blind person to be air, airplane spotting. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. but but I don't do it for the airplane spotting. I do it for the personalities in this business. And uh, Dan's going to be one of the big personalities someday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's back at Delta, isn't he? That's correct. Yeah, and he's in charge of something. Uh, did he tell you what he's in charge of at Delta? He did, but it's top secret. Oh, right. Okay. I, I don't remember, but... David, you've got some uh, events coming up at the museum. Yeah, yeah this Saturday is going to be a big deal. Um, it is Girls in Aviation Day. Um, while we will be celebrating it with various events at our museum, um, I recommend everybody to go out there and, and, and see if you can get a young girl out to an airfield to get them to experience flight or just smell of avgas or whatever. So, I mean, that's that's a big deal. And in October 5th, we've got another book series, but I'll give more about that next next on next time. But lots of things going on at, at the Helicopter Museum. Um, I'm in the process of working on getting a new item for the museum that um, I can't wait to share once it comes out of the closet and gets and isn't classified, but it's, it's really exciting as far as I'm concerned. So a lot of things going on, keeping and keeping out of trouble. Good. Always keep out of trouble. And our main man, Micah, uh, tossed in a, a shout out. Um, this is a, uh, an article in the press Herald, Portland pilot who helped guard Maine's coast. 
180 years after World War II. And what I found kind of the most interesting thing about this, or, or something that I didn't really know much about, was uh, how the how the Civil Air Patrol was established and how they, uh, during World War II, to you know, protect the coast in the Civil Air Patrol, they'd established 21 bases along both coasts, the well, the Atlantic and the Gulf Coast of the U.S. in, in World War II. Um, they patrolled the waters from 1942 and 1943 um, with armed aircraft and looking for uh, submarine attacks and guarding shipping lanes. And the uh, the air crews are credited, this article says, with escorting more than 5,600 convoys, reporting 173 U-boats and attacking 57, flying over 86,000 total missions, logging over 244,000 total flight hours, and uh, flying more than 24 million miles in in total. But the I found out all that interesting, and that's that's some history that I didn't know. There's probably a lot more interesting history about the Civil Air Patrol. Oh, let me just add, they were credited with sinking two submarines in World War II. So is that right? Yeah. Wow. Pretty amazing. Piper Cub against uh, some. Yeah. So the article, the the real the real point of the article though is to talk about uh, Second Lieutenant Oscar Chevenel, who was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal posthumously. Uh, as he died in 1987, um, but uh, you know, one of those one of those individuals who protected the coast during the Second World War. So look for that article in the show notes if you're interested in that. And then we have some listener mail. Uh, this is another here's another little factoid that I didn't know. Uh, we have in the U.S. we have the Eisenhower Interstate System. That's what it's called, and. My knowledge of this, my historical knowledge of that is not great, but uh, my uh, my perception is that during the Second World War, there were a lot of issues moving troops and material and raw material and everything across the the country. So one of the things that Dwight Eisenhower did as as president is uh, created the interstate system of highways. Now uh, Tom wrote in to say that the Eisenhower interstate system has a requirement that there be one mile in every five that must be straight. And the reason is that these straight sections are to be usable as airstrips in times of war or other emergencies. I didn't know that. I think that was pretty uh, pretty fascinating. But then Micah chipped in and says, well, this, is a, this, is a, <laughs> this has been around for a long time. He says, and it's actually not true. Uh, he says that the highways were never planned or designed this way, and uh, he's got a uh, uh, the counterpoint link from a, a Department of Transportation website. Um, so I don't know. I do remember that uh, one of the times I was in in Singapore. Let's see, what was I doing in Singapore at the time? Uh, visiting an uh, engine overhaul shop, and the the roadway, the highway to the airport featured in in what would have been the median of this highway all these like, like huge barrels with plant planting in them and um and everything just you know like sitting in in these big um barrels and things and i i asked the guy that was uh, driving driving me this this seems kind of odd to have all these 
giant planters in the middle of the highway. And he said, so, well, that's because what you're really driving on is an airstrip. And, mm. you know, in, in times of conflict, they can get out here with bulldozers and just push all that stuff to the side. And he said, and you notice those trees along the side of the highway on either side? Perfectly straight trees in a perfectly straight row. Well, that's so the bulldozers can just drive down the line, knocking all the trees over, and now you've got the clearance for the wings. So, Max, I can add that somehow in my memory banks, I mentioned memorization as a one of my power things. Yes. Um, <laughs> the longest straight stretch of the interstate is on I-80 in Nebraska from, like, Lincoln to Omaha. I don't want to quote how many miles, but that's apparently... <laughs> the longest perfectly straight stretch of any of the Eisenhower interstate. And I think I've driven that myself. Yeah. It, it's hard and, to say. And I've away. flown over it. Yeah, and I'd like to add one other myth here, the one in five. Uh, it applies to this show. Apparently, the, the myth has been that we have to be straight for one out of every five minutes, and that, that is a myth. <laughs> that is not true. It's not true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we also got an email from Casey who said, Aloha. He said he was, uh, I was recently at Feltz Field, KSFF, and um, saw this and it reminded me of your eat at the airport link that I keep on my foreflight. And if you, uh, if you have, we haven't talked about it recently, but we have eat at the airport.com, which has a uh, map, a global map that you can uh, navigate around and it identifies uh, eating establishments at airports. So that if you need something to eat, you can visit one of these and, and support the eating establishment at the, at the airport uh, or if you're flying in and so forth. And it's, it's entirely uh, crowdsourced. So people submit items to be added to the, to the database here or updates. Um, and that's what KC is talking about. And uh, what he found was the airport or the Washington State Airport Restaurant List. And he said uh, um, there are uh, a number of places to add. And he said, uh, you know, here's the link to that list. And maybe I could just, you know, add those into the database. And he said, um, thanks for having this wonderful resource. I use it often when planning cross-country trips. So I, of course, said, well, yeah, sure, I'll suck those into the database. And what I didn't realize was that I was just looking at page one of nine. So there are, there's a lot of items in this list. So I'll, I'll try to kind of suck those into eatattheairport.com a, a little bit at a time and uh, encourage folks who uh, might be interested to, to take a look at that site. Uh, we also uh, got an email from uh, uh, Anna, uh, who's the marketing manager for something called Outstanding Aviators. It's a nonprofit. And she says uh, they promote inclusion and diversity within the field of aviation, primarily uh, women, minorities, and LGBTQ pilots are grossly underrepresented, she says, and we've made it our mission to change that. Well, in January, they will be choosing three outstanding aviators to receive a generous prize package. There are many, many sponsors, many aviation companies that, that you would uh, that would be familiar to you, have uh, volunteered some merchandise and some other things. So uh, Anna says, I'm reaching out to you to request for your support. Uh, we operate solely from generosity of financial sponsors, donations, and gifted merchandise. 
but the help we humbly request from you is the most crucially needed. We desperately need to reach more women, minority, and LGBTQ pilots to encourage them to apply. So we'll have the link to the website in the in the show notes, which is uh, simply outstandingaviators.org. And if you uh, would like to apply or uh, encourage someone else to, the applications are made online by December 31st, 2023. There's uh, three categories of um, awards, and there's a panel that will select them in, in 2024. Um, and also, if you'd like to make a, a donation, a tax-deductible donation, you can do that at the website. So we'll pass that along. Again, that's outstandingaviators.org. And then finally, this is some. This is sort of like good news, bad news. I mean, it's not really bad, but uh, in the past, uh, we've had on the show Igor Sikorsky III. I think he's been on twice, as I recall. And you've heard me mention him when he was on the show that he and his wife operate a sporting camp in the North Main Woods. One of the things they do each year is do a Sikorsky weekend where he brings out a lot of family memorabilia uh, and offers some insights and things that only a grandson could. Um, So I've always encouraged people to, well, you might want to just go to that camp just as a fantastic vacation spot, but also for Sikorsky weekends. And I, I, I know a couple of our listeners have done that. Well, Igor and um, his wife have, uh, Karen, Igor and Karen, have decided that after 28 years of operating the camp, they're about ready to retire. And so the uh, Bradford Camps is up for sale. It's listed on Sotheby's International Realty. Um, actually. So two things. Um, If you have a spare $1.6 million laying around or whatever you can negotiate, you can pick yourself up a really nice (laughs) out-of-the-way main sporting camp, uh, which don't come on the market very often. And the the other point might be, I don't know how quickly this will go. I think it'll probably go quickly. But uh, if it doesn't, Time's running short to uh, get yourself up there to the camp and and uh, meet Karen and Igor and have just a wonderful time. So uh, pass that on. And I'll put a link in the show notes to the uh, uh, the listing for the camp. Maybe some of the memorabilia is uh, negotiable in the $1.6 million price. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, he has – I've said this before a long time ago, but he has uh, – Connecticut, Igor has Connecticut helicopter pilot license number one mm. issued to Igor Sikorsky, which I've held in my hands in a plastic sleeve, of course. I, I keep telling Igor that I have a place to put all of that stuff if he wants to get rid of them. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure you do. All right, great. With that, um, we'll, we'll wrap it up. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Airplane Geeks podcast. We really appreciate it. We want to thank, again, our guest, Mike Switek. Mike, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. And I'm pretty serious about having you on again and talking about other interesting things, if if you'll do that. And I'm very serious on coming back. So thank you to all of you and uh, your listening audience. Terrific. You can find us at airplanegeeks.com. The direct link to the show notes for this episode is airplanegeeks.com slash 766. It's the episode number. If you want to reach us, 
via email. That's thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. And if you'd like to get an invitation to our Slack listener team or our Discord server, write to us at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com and we'll tell you how to get in. All right. Let's tell everyone where they can find us online or elsewhere. David Vanderhoof, we'll start with you. You can find me on helicoptermuseum.org. And, of course, you can find me here. And I just realized that next week is a milestone. Another Boeing episode. <laughs> I know. 767. I know. And we haven't planned anything specific for it, at least not yet. So we've got It one. will be an episode of Tankers, followed by some more Tankers. Oh, no. I hope Followed not. by some more Tankers. All right, Rob, where do we find you online? Uh, jetwine.com. Uh, usually, and except for tomorrow and a few days after, where I will be en route to or from LAX. And I, you know, it, it's funny, Mike, when you mentioned the uh, uh, the Dork Fest, I went, oh, God, right, that was last <laughs> week. Yeah. And why couldn't that have happened this week? Uh, but anyway, I, I really wanted to get out there someday before I'm, oh, I was going to say before I'm old. Before I'm older. Unable to. Older and unable, yes. Yeah, yeah. You and me both. We gotta get out there, Rob. I don't wanna I don't wanna miss that. All right, Max Trescott, how about you? Well, first I gotta tell Rob that I looked it up. If you leave right now, it'll only take you twenty eight hours to drive <laughs> to LAX from, from Evanston. <laughs> so Okay. I, I'm on that, baby. <laughs> That'd be a long 28 hours. And folks can find me at the Aviation News Talk podcast. And if you want to shoot at me an email, go to aviationnewstalk.com and click on contact at the top of the page. Great. Mike, I didn't ask you any online resources or anything that you would uh, share with our audience. Well, there is a small website um, just under my name, but no, if any of your listeners, I love to connect with people on LinkedIn and, um, you know, I, I, you know, happy to, to accept most connections there unless they look entirely like spam. And, uh, I've met some great people that way, I think, including a few of you in the past. So, yeah. um, look, look for me on LinkedIn and, uh, hopefully I'll find you there as well. Great. And, uh, Switek is spelled S W I A T E K. That's correct. Just like the number one woman's tennis player. Oh, is that right? Long lost relative. No, it's a very common Polish name. Yeah. And uh, the pronunciation in Polish is uh, Shrontek, but we won't go into that. But uh, Thank you. Yep. You, you spelled <laughs> it properly and away we go. All right. Thanks again for coming on. Say hi to your wife for us. I will do. And I'm Max Flight. You can find out where I hang out online at my dopey vanity page called 30,000 Feet Dot com. So please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. Nighty night. Thanks for listening. I, I know what I was going to ask is that you, you mentioned earlier um, that uh, the, never mind, it just you lost in it. one ear and out the other. Just Well, let me just follow up, Mike, said, and say the reason we do this is because we have radio faces. That's, that's now, why we're here. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do as well, as you can probably tell. Uh.